welcome to another episode of The Watchdog with me, Low Key, here on Mint Press. As you know, we are going against the grain with our work. Um, for that reason, we really do um, need all the support we can get. So please do like, share and subscribe on this video. And also, we hope that you may be able to support us on Patreon. Um, we are very, very fortunate to receive the support that we do. And in this uh, mainstream corporate media dominated public sphere, it's harder and harder for independent media to really get their ideas out. So please support us so we can continue doing the important investigative work that we do do. Now, this week, we are joined by Asa Wynn Stanley from Electronic Interfather. He also has a book coming out very soon, which we are going to speak about too. But firstly, just to kick us off, Asa, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Nice to be with you again. Nice to be with you too. Um, recently, we have seen this wave of protests hit the political unit of Israel in response to Benjamin Netanyahu's plans for judicial reform. Now, something that struck me as interesting about these protests is that the head of Israel's external intelligence agency, uh, Mossad, David Bernayer, actually announced, and it was put out in an article on Intelligence Online, that actually he was, quote-unquote, giving permission to 7,000 current employees of Israeli intelligence to take part in this massive mobilization. What does that say to you, and what's your position on these protests going on in occupied Palestine? Yeah, that was uh, quite interesting to see the sort of split in the Zionist movement with inside um, the occupied Palestinian territories that were occupied in 1948, um, you know, also known as present-day Israel. Um, well, in a, an article for my Substack, I wrote calling it Israel's racist mass movement. And the reason for that is the the nature of the protests the protests are not for democracy as they claim they're for um preserving the jewish citizens of israel's own privileges within the settler colonial entity that's what they're for um in you know a really i, I quoted in the article a really apt um description of the protests um by joseph massad the palestinian um Professor of Modern Arab Politics and Intellectual History at Columbia University, you know, one of the world's most um, uh, famous and leading uh, Palestinian scholars. Um, and what he 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 explains really that the ostensible differences between the Zionist left and the Zionist right represented um, by the protesters as the ostensible left and the government as the right, um, the differences between them really are not on anything um, of principle and anything fundamental. And he says that the, bo the, the both the Israeli right and the Israeli left alike 
quote, falsely claimed that Israel has, had been democratic before Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister, when in fact it has always been nothing more than a predatory settler colony based on laws that grant racial and colonial privileges to Jewish colonists who live in a master race democracy. That's his apt phrase, is the, the master race democracy, because they're not advocating the protesters currently who are mobilizing on the streets of Tel Aviv and other um, colonial Israeli cities within occupied Palestine. Um, they're not advocating for a, an equal state of even of all its citizens, right? Even of all the Palestinian citizens of Israel who live within Palestine, they're not even ad advocating for equality for them, let alone the equality of the majority of the population between the river and the sea, the majority of the population um, in historic Palestine um, is now once again the, the Palestinians. And there's, you know, it, 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 it's, it's hard to, to know exactly because Israeli demographic numbers are, are very misleading and they always seek to underplay the number of Palestinians. But it's, it's almost certain by now that the Palestinians between the river and the sea are the demographic majority. And even before that was the case um, in recent years, in the last decade or so, um, the only reason that there ever was a temporary and small Jewish majority was because it was violently gerrymandered by the settler colonial entity, which, you know, um, established itself um, most notably in and most markedly in 1948 with the expulsion of the majority of the population of the, of the indigenous population of the Palestinian people. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's quite interesting that there's a, um, a split between the different kinds of colonizers. Um, and uh, the, the quotes by Joseph Massad continues saying, the fact that the very rights these protesters enjoy and which they fear losing have always been based on the dispossession of, and oppression of the Palestinian people exposes their protest movement as one that decidedly seeks to preserve not democracy, but master race democracy. And yeah, I mean, that's my position as well. I absolutely go along with that because they're not seeking equality they're not they're not seeking um liberation of the indigenous people they're not seeking to give up their privileges why would they you know they they benefit from the privileges bestowed by the um israeli supreme court which they as they see it they're battling to preserve and to save um so-called jewish democracy the jewish state um it's this it's the same um settler colonial court which you know time and time again legitimizes the decisions of Israeli governments of both right and left to dispossess Palestinians, you know, to um, to expel Palestinians, to demolish villages all over historic Palestine, whether it's in the West Bank um, or inside 1948 Palestine. Um, so, you know, these are the settler institutions and they're seeking to um, they they see the new measures by the Netanyahu government as being indemnical to the their privileges and to the long term survival of the the Jewish state. So the state which preserves their colonial privileges within side Palestine. So I mean, it, what? Hmm. Sorry, go ahead. So yeah, so what we're seeing is is not a difference. It's not a fundamental or principal difference. It's a matter of. Um, strategy and tactics of, of two competing factions within the Zionist movement and within within the settler colony.
I mean, we could say it's what Sigmund Freud referred to as the narcissism of minor difference. I have to say right. it was quite the scene for me to see Ehud Olmert, of all people, pontificating about the crimes of the Netanyahu government against Palestinians, for instance, directly pointing out uh, Smotrich and what he said about Hawara in Nablus and the pogrom which took place there, when actually Ehud Omar was the prime minister at the time of Operation Karsled, which saw over 1,400 Palestinians killed by Israel in Gaza. The use of white phosphorus was plentiful. And even Omar was in a position where traveling to London seemed like quite a risk that he may be arrested for war crimes and breaches of the Geneva Conventions. Another interesting figure that we've seen come out and start instrumentalizing the Palestinians really against the Netanyahu government is Margaret Hodge. Now, Asa, you are a sort of uh, specter that haunts the Labour Party, I would say, and your new work is really so. gonna, <laughs> is is your new work is going to expose a lot of that. But what did you think when you see someone like Margaret Hodge sort of discovering this well of compassion for Palestinian humanhood when it comes time to take aim at Benjamin Netanyahu? Yeah, I mean, the apology, the um, the apologetics are absolutely rank. Like, it is really disgusting to see um, Margaret Hodge, who um, did all her very best to preserve and to uh you know to keep the privileges of the israeli state with you know within the labor party to keep them uh, to keep the labor party fully pro israel no pro israel no matter what you know um in favor of zionism without qualification as keir starmer notoriously put it she absolutely went out of her way to do everything that she could to stop even the minor social democratic reforms that would have been brought in by Jeremy Corbyn had he been able to become prime minister. She went completely out of her way to stop that taking place. You know, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't going to do anything radical, you know. Um, he was, um, you know, he wasn't going to do anything um, even on terms of, of Israel. You know, in my view, he was far too pro-Israel. Um, but even these minor, rec you know, this very small recognition towards the Palestinians as being remotely human was too much for a racist like Margaret Hodge. Um, and we, you know, we just see that they, um, when she comes out and she came out in favor of these protests, you know, and we see these kind of opportunistic examples of that and there's been more a lot more examples of it as well you know the israeli politician you know what you were just saying not long ago reminds me of the israeli uh politician benny gantz you know the former um senior um israeli military officer who's now a leading opposition politician you know he was part of the last coalition government and now of course you know he's um talking up these um, demonstrations against the Netanyahu right-wing coalition and hoping to benefit from them. Um, should there, you know, should there be um, any kind of new elections in any way? And this is the same man who, you know, in his back in 2019, in his electoral campaign to the election, boasted 
that when he um, was a military officer, he bombed parts of Gaza back to the Stone Age. You know, so this this was the kind. This is the kind of thing that's considered popular within Israel. Is um, is uh, violence against the Palestinians essentially? So you know, we see time and time again that it's it's actually it's the Palestinians that don't count. We we see that it's the um, it's the the settler colonial populations that are supposed to be superior and are supposed to count and that are supposed to um, is we're supposed to consider their considerations before anything else. You know, and and the truth is that's a dominant consensus within the settler society. Um, again and again, it has been um, demonstrated. But I think also there's questions about what the backbone. Um, in terms of ideologically of the political entity of Israel as was established in 1948. Who makes up that backbone of that entity? You know, the the Zionist movement pre-1948 really had two main poles. Either side, both actually fought in the British Army in World War I. That's Vladimir Jabotinsky as the quote-unquote right-wing revisionist Zionist movement. And David Ben Gurion as the, you know, allegedly left-wing side of the Zionist movement. Now, one side sought accommodation with the British. That's the Ben Gurion side, and the other side, which was Jabotinsky, and later sort of split off into the Stern Gang. You know, the Stern Gang even sought accommodation with the Nazi regime in 1941. This is documented historical fact that a letter was written from the Stern Gang to the Nazi government seeking an alliance in World War II. But in terms of the Palestine context of this, Jabotinsky and the Stern Gang entered direct confrontation with the British in a way that Ben-Gurion and Chaim Wiseman never did. And so what then became the IDF, for example, was the Palmach. It wasn't the Stern Gang, meaning that you even had examples of and the Palmach and the Haganah basically at one point opening fire on ships bringing in supporters of uh, Jabotinsky into Palestine and around 50 uh, people being killed. So interestingly, what then went into making up the political elite of Israel, it was less the Jabotinsky side of Zionism and more the Ben-Gurion side of Zionism. But the interesting thing is today in the society, there were more streets, hospitals, schools, cinemas named after Jabotinsky than there are named after Theodor Herzl, for example. And the interesting thing is that across that spectrum of the Zionist movement, there was also a consensus between both Ben Gurion, who was writing in New York Library in 1915, and Jabotinsky, who wrote in The Iron Wall that the Palestinians were an indigenous population, actually. And that, and as Jabotinsky put in the Iron Wall, no indigenous population will simply surrender to colonialism. It has to be enforced by the use of violence. And so it's interesting to me that some are trying to kind of uh, posit what's happening as a slip into fascism, but the fascism 
was always there. You don't get much more fascistic than the cleansing and displacement of three quarters of a million people simply for existing from the land that they were in. Um, and so it's this this strange kind of romanticism of the Zionist idea that tries to explain it as as somehow having these uh, these democratic ideals beneath it, when actually it is as, as pretty anti-democratic as you can possibly be. There's one group of people who are being punished for existing and who are disqualified outside of, you know, and left in this space of rightlessness in a plethora of ways, um, in both micro and macro um, ways. So, you know, it's interesting as this current schism that is developing, and also what we're coming up against is Netanyahu facing more and more um, columns of the state the, this alleged state of the state rebelling against him, including a lot of people in the military saying they refuse to serve, people refusing to undergo training in the Air Force. You know, all of this is significant and doesn't come from nowhere. So, you know, yeah. the political elite that exists there is certainly split over what's happening. But it's interesting, different buttons that are being pushed. And of course, we've never seen hundreds of thousands, frankly, we've never seen hundreds of thousands of Israelis take to the street in defense of the Palestinians, but we're seeing hundreds of thousands of them at least take to the street now um, in this interesting uh, pantomime. Yeah, and, and there was a, there was a similar, um, you know, the, I mean, you know, we, we're seeing a lot of overblown rhetoric at the moment about how these uh, protests are, are unprecedented and all this kind of stuff, but these kind of things happen periodically within Israel. You know, there is these internal differences that happen from time to time because there is um, internal discussion about the best way to preserve the the settler colony and to preserve their privileges, um, and that they they see that their leaders are not um, doing it effectively, or they consider that they're not doing it effectively. There is these political uh, diversions. So we saw, you know, for example, a little over a decade ago. There was the um, there was there was the protests over economic issues, um, you know, and there as well. Back in 1982, there was the the protests after the the invasion of Lebanon, um, and again, it wasn't to defend Lebanese people who, you know, the the right wing government um, invaded Lebanon and killed about twenty thousand Palestinians and Lebanese. No, it was just that there was the PLO at the time was putting up a very stern armed resistance and that um, that their you know sons and daughters were starting to come back in body bags. And so the price was considered to be too high. Uh, and so, you know, there was this protest movement on the street then at that time as well. So, you know, it, it's not unprecedented. These things do happen. And that doesn't mean there's any kind of um, significant um, divergence. There's no divergence on principles of preserving the Jewish state, you know, preserving racial privileges. Um, and that's why I emphasize in my article on Substack about this that we've mentioned. Um, I, I emphasize the history. Look, it, it, it was not, you know, Jeremy Corbyn put out a tweet about the pro, about, um, apartheid and you know saying that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu runs uh, a brutal apartheid regime against the Palestinians 
Okay, yes, of course, that's true. But it's not only Benjamin Netanyahu that runs a brutal apartheid regime against the Palestinians. And more to the point, um, Benjamin Netanyahu and his political faction, the, the, the revisionist Zionists on the right, they didn't start the brutal apartheid regime, as you've, as you've mentioned. It was the so-called Labour Zionists, represented by the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, who began, who began all of Israel's worst crimes were done by the Labour Zionists, um, without exception. Um, the um, the invasion, the, the the original foundation of the settler colonial state, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948, 800,000 Palestinians expelled by force. Yes, the revisionists participated in that, of course, but at the time they were the minority current. The mainstream of the Zionist movement and the the, the Zionist gangs which expelled the Palestinians were, you know, they considered themselves to be socialists. Of course, you know, the, the Palestinians didn't factor within the humanity of this kind of in, their vision of equality. It was only an equality between Jews, between Jewish colonists. Um, so, you know, it's not really any kind of true vision of any kind of emancipatory socialism that we would recognize. Um, and it, it 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 was the Labour Zionists who did that, and also the the invasion of 1967 of the remaining portion of Palestine, um, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, as well as at the time Egypt, um, Syria, and Jordan. You know that was done by the Labour Zionists. Um, you know the the so-called left-wing Zionists, and it wasn't until 1977. That the Likud first came in, so you know these differences are not uh, are not principled differences. I mean, and also we can't forget that it was a Labour government here, Harold Wilson, who sold five hundred Centurion tanks to Israel, thus allowing it to carry out the occupation um, of these places. And even when we look at the reason for the creation of this Labour Zionism, as it were. The late 1800s saw settlements built which employed Palestinians to till the soil because the understanding was that these newcomers from um, uh, Western and Eastern Europe were not really well informed about how to um, work with the environment. So initially, Palestinians were employed, but then the second phase of the yeshuv, as it's referred to in Hebrew, the, the, the settlement movement, um, introduced this concept of the division of labor, which said that you need, um, and this is where the mus muscular kibbutzism comes out of, because it requires um, new colonists to actually be able to do the jobs that Palestinians are doing, and then That's establish right. industries which are um separate really and you know the railways was of course famously one of the only places where both palestinians and um members of the yeshuv as it was referred to were were sort of working in some way next to each other but it was out of this uh <clears throat> i would say sort of cultural um uh chauvinism that you created these separate uh, separate kind of uh, entities, and then of course the uh, the British mandate 
had the implementation of the Balfour Declaration, which was the set of the establishing of separate institutions for Jewish people and for indigenous Palestinian people. So we see it all there. But by the way, Asa, what is this story of Britain working on countering violent extremism in Palestinian refugee camps? What's the story with that? Right, yeah. So um myself and Kit Clarenberg co-wrote a piece uh, which was published back in the beginning of February for the Electronic Intifada, um, which was, you know, I mean, I'm really proud of that piece. It's a really great article which exposes a lot actually i think and uh, essentially what happened is we obtained a cache of leaked documents from adam smith international which is a essentially it's a mercenary intelligence firm is what it is um for the british government it's it's in a large you know it's a contactor for the british government and and what it does is is obtains intelligence and quite often it does so on the um on the pretext of kind of an academic pretext, um, uh, uh, the 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 it, what we found in these particular documents was the term they used was academic purpose. That and they they're actually talking about it. This phrase was used in a risk assessment um, where they're saying that um, the Palestinian refugee camps um, must be told that it's an academic. We've got an academic purpose, and we've got. No links to the British government. Um, if they just think we're professors and we're just doing academic research, we'll be okay. But if they find out the reality, which is that we are funded and tasked by the British government to find out information on Palestinian refugees, then we're going to have there's a very serious threat of our uh, of there being non cooperation with us. Um, and so, what these documents showed was that. Um, there was a, a, a secret project by Adam Smith International um, and uh, another organization called the ISD, which was uh, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a kind of uh, quote unquote extremism think tank, you know, another kind of private contractor working on intelligence for the British government, essentially working together under the auspices of the British government. And um, the, the 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 idea of the project was to essentially, um, it, I mean, I, I think the best description, or they didn't use this word, would be to infiltrate Palestinian refugee camps um, using you know local um, local people using Palestinians and others to kind of to get information on Palestinian refugee camps and to kind of um, for the purpose of surveilling them and, and manipulating them. So ostensibly, the purpose was to um, the the headline purpose of the project was to find out and to um, counter the narrative of violent radical extremists like Al Qaeda and ISIS. But you know, it's the the problem with that is that the Adam Smith International has also got a record of actually aiding Al Qaeda within. Um, within Syria, so this was, you know, the Nusra Front at the time. This this came out in a BBC. This is something I get into the details of in my article. Came out in a BBC Panorama documentary a few years ago that Adam Smith International was aiding Al Qaeda, the Nusra Front in Syria, um, under the auspices of what was called at the time, uh, now abandoned project, the Free Syrian Police. Um, you know, so this this kind of scandal, um, it, you know, it. 
that had, that came out. And so why would you then, um, it came out before this project. So why would you launch this project? Um, why would you use this contractor, which has got this record of azing Al-Qaeda to help to uh, combat Al-Qaeda in Palestinian refugee camps? Um, it, you know, it doesn't add up. It just seems like basically an intelligence gathering exercise and a, and a way to um, kind of push British British government agendas, British government interests and pro-Israel interests within the Palestinian refugee camps. Um, and, you know, there's there's great, you know, we, we obtained the documents, we've released some of the documents and, you, you know, you can read it in the article. One of the most interesting parts of it was that one of the, the four... Uh, four main people named in the document as being the people carrying out this project was actually a, a Palestinian by the name of uh, Sama Batrawi. Um, so it's uh, a, a Palestinian uh, Dutch academic. So it's um, it's really interesting. Um, it was an interesting project, and it shows that um, it that the project aimed to monitor what it called quote, criticism of Western and Israeli foreign policy. So, you know, this is set to be, you know, that was said to be some kind of indicator of quote-unquote extremism. Um, and it just goes to show that it's, it's all part of this kind of British government narrative of uh, prevent this kind of uh, Islamophobic um, uh, policy, which is kind of seeing anything as pro-Palestinian as being suspect. Well, I think also what it points to is the establishment over the last few decades of a trilateral, um, a trinational security state with Israel, the United States and Britain acting essentially as one hand information sharing galore. And the individual that you mentioned actually previously worked for the Klingendale um, Institute, which is funded by NATO and the US State Department. And also, this individual had been at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. Now, the important thing to remember about the ICSR is that it was established by the Interdisciplinary Center Herzliya in Israel, which is the school for Israeli intelligence figures. Um, it was a sort of a project, this uh, International Center for the Study of Radicalization. It was a project um, carried out by King's College, the University of Pennsylvania in the US, and this School for Israeli Intelligence. And in fact, the leadership of this uh, International Center for the Study of Radicalization includes Boaz Gaynor the the, from, from uh, Herzliya. We also know that this uh, organization, the International Center for the Study of Radicalization, is actually funded by the British Home Office and several uh, Israel lobby groups like CST and another organization that pumps money into several Israel uh, pro-Israel organizations, the Claude Duffield uh, Foundation. And actually, at the very launch for this ISCR, we saw it reported that Avi Ditcher, the former head of Shin Bet, the internal um, intelligence agency of the Israeli government, was due to attend it in 2008. You know, when you also take into account that there are numerous 
um, Israel lobby groups or pro-Israel organizations in this country that are funded by the British government. Um, one of them, of course, being the UK Israel Tech Hub, which exists for the stated purpose of obtaining contracts for Israeli tech companies in this country. It's based in the British embassy in Israel, and it is staffed by former Israeli military and intelligence figures and is funded by the British government. You know, these are major overlaps on these questions. So I guess it leaves to us, especially when considering the Corbyn era as um, epitomizing a deeper level of cooperation, a sort of unprecedented level of cooperation between Israel, the US and Britain that we probably hadn't seen before, especially not domestically within Britain. Um, all of this stuff becomes a little bit clearer. And when you consider that Britain have a reputation, particularly in Lebanon, for spying on people in the camps there. And you do wonder yeah. where that information is going when uh, Britain is launching these uh, these operations in camps um, that Palestinians live in. Are we to believe that data is only going to the British government or is it going somewhere else as well? Yeah, I mean, there's abs there's absolutely no reason to believe that it doesn't go to Israel when you know the British government is so closely in cooperation with Israel. You know, there's no reason that it wouldn't go. You know, so I mean, the especially especially sorry, just one last thing. Yeah, um, especially when we consider this new 2030 roadmap that has just been signed between James Cleverly of the British uh, uh, the British Foreign Minister and Eli Cohen, the Foreign Minister of Israel. You know, in yeah. it. It details a plethora of shared um, cyber projects, particularly it mentions that Israel has now been elevated to a tier one cyber partner for Britain. Britain, of course, has promised that it will um, not it will support Israel in when people call Israel an apartheid entity. Britain will argue back. Um, of course, it doesn't mention very interestingly Elbit systems. And when you consider that Elbit's chairman and top shareholder, Michael Federman, has received the CBE and the, the, the levels of trade that exist between Britain and Israel, uh, but particularly the role that Elbit has played in the development of that relationship. For Elbit to be left out of any of the literature about this deal that has just been signed, I mean, that is really a massive victory for Palestine action, right? Yeah, I hadn't noticed that. That's really interesting because I wonder about that. You know, I mean, there's there's been a lot of signs um, in recent over the last year, really, that um, they never like to admit that they've been defeated. But there's been a lot of signs that they they could possibly be on their way out. You know, they could. You know, there's been we've seen. Um, how many facilities of Elbit have been shut down now? Two? Is it two? Two, and the cancelling yeah. of two hundred and eighty million pounds worth of contract. You see, the yeah. drop so in, in the value of shares in Elbit's UK branch by twenty percent. Um, there one. could be a very swift collapse of Elbit's presence in the UK, and I I wonder if that's coming, and if they know that it's coming, and that's maybe maybe the reason that they've left it out of it. I don't know. That's speculation, but. 
you know, it they they it it could well be that they fear something like that, and so they they you know they they've left it out for those reasons. But be that as it may, I mean, I think it shows that um, you know Israel is really embedded at all levels of the British government in a way that yes, of course, lots of other states have um, extensive and expensive. Um, lobbying operations in the UK, but um, there isn't any other that is on the same level as of Israel. You know, we mentioned all these connections in the last story with um, all these organisations between uh, and the Israeli government. Um, you know, they 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 have all these other cutouts that work at, on different governments on different levels. So the ISD, this British government contractor that I, that I mentioned, was part of this consortium that was spying on. Palestinian refugee camps. Um, they um, also one of their partners is um, the ADL, the Anti Defamation League in the US, which um, is kind of the US equivalent of the CST, which you mentioned. And so, you know, we've got all these kind of. It's interesting that all these kind of political, a lot of these political and many of the intelligence and military. Um, elites within the the Zionist movement and within the, the Israeli settler colonial project are from this kind of um, you know labor Zionist faction and are of that kind of lib- liberal Zionist tendency. Yeah, and so that explains what you what how we started this podcast with yeah. the the head of the Mossad um, giving explicitly giving his agents permission to go to the demonstration because they see. They see this kind of um, Kahanist Zionism, the right wing Zionism, as um, too crude to sustain their colonial project in the long run. Absolutely. Um, Asa, unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you so much for joining us. I encourage everyone to pick up Asa's book. It will be out very, very soon, I'm told. We'll get him back on the show to discuss it some more. But um, unfortunately, we have to draw an end to this episode. Asa, thanks so much for joining us, and hopefully, see you next time on the watch. Great to be with you.